Do take your Bibles, if you have them, and open them uh, with me to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. We're resuming our study today in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and picking up where we left off, beginning in verse 35, and reading through to verse 49. It's been a while since we've been in 1 Corinthians, uh, but you may notice a shift in the overall argument. In the first half of this chapter, Paul has been laboring to convince the Corinthians that yes, indeed, there is a resurrection. He's been speaking of the fact of the resurrection, the truth that because Jesus has been raised, all of his people will be raised as well. And now he changes in the remaining half of this chapter to discuss what exactly the resurrection will be like. What sorts of bodies uh, will we have and, and how will these things take place? It's all begun by these questions that Paul raises or, or he interacts with really in verse 35 as we'll see at the beginning of our passage today. But this is what Paul is doing. He's beginning to shift, not from the fact of the resurrection, but to the manner of the resurrection and what it will be like. Again, we're going to read from verse 35 uh, through to the end of verse 49. You can find our reading beginning today on page 961 of our ESVs. Before we turn to the Lord's Word, let us go to Him again and to His throne of grace. Please join me in prayer. Gracious Lord and God, unless you would condescend to us to reveal yourself, we could have no understanding of who you are as our blessedness and as our reward. You have done just that. Through your covenant love and your kindness to us, through condescending and coming down as we have celebrated this Advent season in the person of Jesus Christ, and he now being raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the throne on high, will come again and will raise all of his from the dead. And we all will be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye to bear the image of the man of heaven. And so we pray that as we read this word, you would condescend again by your Holy Spirit to open our minds and our hearts. Help us to understand uh, and to grow in an understanding of your Son, our Savior, and this hope of resurrection that we have today. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. Hear now the word of God from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, beginning in verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain, but God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory for the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. 
If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus, it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Ascends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. May he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. There is perhaps no more natural Christian response to the truth of the resurrection than to ask questions about what the resurrection is going to be like. We've all done it. Sometimes we do it alone, like Mary, pondering all these things in our heart. Sometimes we do it gathered together with brothers and sisters in Christ, and we talk to one another, and we think through some of these things and some of these questions that we have, and what will it be like to have a perfected, resurrected body? Will we look like we look now? If not, how how will we be different, and will we be able to recognize one another? What will it be like to be rid of sickness and pain and weakness? Will paralyzed people be able to walk, and will, will deaf people be able to hear? Will everyone be beautiful in the resurrection? And if so, whose standard of beauty are we working with? What will resurrection life be like? We need to eat. We need to sleep. What will you do with all your time? There's an endless string of questions that Christians ask about the resurrection, and, and that's not surprising. Unlike some other biblical realities, the doctrines that we read about, the resurrection is something that we haven't yet experienced. Not like things like sin and guilt. We know what that feels like and what that experience is like. We even know what it is to read words of promise and know that we've been forgiven. We know what it is to struggle through affliction and, and to struggle to find hope in dire circumstances. But the resurrection, that lies outside the pale of our experience. In fact, Our daily life is almost the opposite of what we read about the glory of the resurrection. And the more we live in these bodies and live in this world, the more our experience runs counter to what we read in Scripture about the glory that is to be revealed when Christ returns. We see more and more our limitations. We see more and more our sinfulness and our frailties and our perishability. We come face to face with our need and our limits. And so we have questions about the resurrection. And Christians aren't the only ones who have questions about the resurrection. Cynics and skeptics have questions about the resurrection as well. Often questions of a different sort, though. Whereas very often, Christians will ask questions about the resurrection as as a sort of doorway into worship, to stand in awe before the Lord and to wonder what it will all be like. Cynics and skeptics can ask these same questions, questions of, of how and of what but ask in a different manner, not to open a door, but to be a dead end. Not to start a conversation, but as a means to end the conversation, to show how silly all of these things are that you folks believe. (laughs) A resurrection, come on. Lots of people ask questions about the resurrection. And it seems that in this passage, Paul is dealing with both believers and skeptics. 
You see that quick uh, denunciation that Paul gives in verse 36, you foolish person. It seems that these questions are actually coming from uh, a bit of skepticism, and Paul is firm, he is direct. He also goes on to be instructive because he knows that there are also real believers asking real questions about the resurrection in Corinth. He wants to teach them. Maybe there are some of you here today who are more skeptical than you are certain about these things. There are certainly others here among us today who rejoice in the truth of the resurrection and who look forward to the glory of the resurrection. And it is your bread and butter, spiritually speaking, and you cannot wait. There are others that are somewhere in the middle. And you believe in the resurrection, but you believe in the resurrection the way that you believe that Washington crossed the Delaware River. It's good, and I'm sure it makes a difference somewhere, but in your daily life, it it doesn't really show up anywhere. You have trouble seeing it. Wherever you are on that spectrum, whatever your questions are about the resurrection, Paul has one answer for you, and it's the same answer for all of us. The answer is look to Jesus. Look to Jesus if you're skeptical. Look to Jesus if you believe. Look to Jesus if you're somewhat on the fence. Jesus is the one who displays the resurrection power of God. He's the one who's come to show us the pattern of what the resurrection of God's people is going to look like. And so, folks, look to Jesus. Jesus reveals the pattern of God's resurrection power. And the resurrection really is all about God's power. This is the foundation we need to start with because whether you are certain about the resurrection or whether you are cynical about it, it comes down to whether you believe that God is able to do what he has said he will do on the last day. You either accept the supernatural claims of the resurrection or you reject them. You either begin with the standpoint that God exists and he's able to do as he pleases, or you begin from the standpoint that God does not exist. And all this resurrection talk, it's all just make-believe. You either believe it or you don't. The resurrection, by the way, will always be foolishness to those who deny the reality of God's power. It's something that will always be seen as a stumbling block. One of these things that Paul said earlier in the letter, that the natural man cannot accept the things of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot accept them. Those who deny the power of God, the resurrection will always be foolish. And again, you see that this seems to be where the questions in verse 35 come from. Now, you might remember that back in verse 12, there were some among the Corinthians that Paul said were flat out denying the resurrection. There is no resurrection of the dead. And now they're raising these questions as a means to show how silly all of this sort of thing is. And you've probably heard questions asked in that manner. Come on, we, we all know that when people die, they stay dead. So how do you propose to say that these things will happen? What kind of body and how grotesque will that be that those that were maimed in death will come back with the same bodies? And you can see all these terrible shows and this craze about zombies and bodies that come back and they say, oh, really, will it be something like that? Paul doesn't play their game. He doesn't get sucked into what they're trying to do and trying to dismiss the resurrection. He doesn't soft-pedal his teaching. He doesn't make the resurrection simply something that's metaphorical. He doesn't capitulate to their way of arguing. He doesn't start gathering data. He simply calls this rejection for what it is. It is foolishness. The word there in verse 36, we have it in three words. In our English, you foolish person, the Greek is simply one. Fool. 
It's a declaration. This is what he says. This is foolishness. That might sound harsh, but it's true. What Paul's talking about here is the biblical definition of foolishness. I think Paul probably has Psalm 14 in the back of his mind. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Where does the fool say those things? Foolishness in the Bible is not just a problem of the intellect, it's a problem of the heart. It is a heart disposition. It is a predetermined antagonism to the possibility of God's power. This is different, folks, from genuine seeking after the Lord and asking questions to understand more about what God might be doing in the world. The Lord spoke through Jeremiah. He said, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart, but cynical skepticism is another thing entirely. Cynical skepticism begins with the premise, God does not exist. And it seeks to establish that premise any way that it can. Normally that means through intellectual barriers to the truth of God, but it really, the Bible says, begins in the heart. Every once in a while we will find cynics and skeptics who are honest enough to admit that this is how it happens. Uh, Aldous Huxley was no friend of Christianity. An atheistic philosopher who bordered on the edges of nihilism. He championed the idea of the ultimate meaninglessness of the world. Here's what he wrote. He said, I had a motive for not wanting the world to have a meaning. Consequently, I assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. He goes on, the philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. And for myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. That's how Huxley said it. It begins in the heart. I assumed the world had no meaning, and I sought out data to confirm that assumption, and guess what? I found it. Thomas Nagel is another atheistic philosopher. He teaches at uh, Columbia University. Here's how he put it. He said, I want atheism to be true. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right about my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. And so much for cold, reasoned unbelief. This is rejecting the power of God as a worldview issue. And it's the biblical definition of folly. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now perhaps... You remember the question that the Sadducees asked Jesus because they were starting with the same premise. They didn't believe in anything supernatural. They certainly didn't believe in the resurrection, and so they cornered Jesus, and they cooked up this scenario, and they tried to catch him in something to make the resurrection look silly. And you remember what they said. They said there was a woman who was widowed seven times over, and in the resurrection, whose wife will she be, Jesus? Let's plumb the depths of just how ridiculous all this resurrection talk is. Certainly she's not going to have seven husbands, will she? And Jesus' response is perfect. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. He went on to correct them on a few other things too, but the power of God was a linchpin. That's where he started. You're wrong because you're starting with the wrong premise. This is the same issue that Paul is dealing with. And so he says, this is foolishness. 
You would know how things work if you simply look at the world around you. And he takes an analogy from agriculture. He says, you take a seed with no signs of life, and you bury it in the ground, and a new plant comes up. Folks, you will dig in vain if you go back and look for that seed after the plant has come up. It's gone. It has died, in a sense, so that the plant can come up, not with the same body. You don't, you don't gather a crop of seeds. You might if you're planting grain and you want that grain, but there is a whole new body, a whole new plant that comes up and stalks and leaves and trunks and all sorts of things. And Paul says, you know how this works. You bury something in the ground and it comes up differently than it went in. It's a small picture, folks. It's an incomplete picture of the resurrection. But the focus that Paul draws our attention to is in God's ability and in his power. He says, what you sow is not the body to be, but a bare kernel. And then verse 38, God gives it a body as he has chosen. Where does all this this come from? The planter and the sower doesn't make it happen. The one who waters, we've already heard that earlier in the book. He talked about himself and Apollos. He said, some plant and some water, but God gives growth. And so he is the same here. It's God's power that you need to factor in. And so to the eyes of faith, difficult questions are no obstacle. When you understand that God is working in power in the resurrection. But the resurrection will always seem foolish to those who begin by rejecting the God who is at work in the world. And you either believe it or you don't. Now, why is all this so important? Paul doesn't really give uh, this skepticism the time of day, so why is your pastor camping out on this one point, and there are so many other verses we have to cover before you need to leave today. Well, here's why this is a real issue and worth our time this morning. Because what you believe about the resurrection and the way that you ask questions about the resurrection isn't simply a matter of do you believe in the supernatural or not. This is a matter of worship. This is a matter of whether you are willing to worship the God who has revealed himself or whether you are willing to worship only your own intellect and the things that fit into your intellectual grid. Mark my words, you worship something. Everyone in this congregation worships something or someone, and it may be the Lord, it may be reason, it may be intellect, it may be your family or your relationships or your finances, but you have some ultimate standard in your life that you fall back on and you say, I can judge everything by this criteria. Is it good for my family? Does it conform to the way that I view the world? Does it conform to what the Lord has said? You have some ultimate infallible standard, and that is what you worship. And the ultimate infallible standard is is either the Lord who has revealed himself or your own intellectual grid. It's a matter of worship. What you believe about the resurrection reveals who you are willing to worship. Either God is infallible and what he has said is true or your own intellect is infallible. Either you worship the Lord who's revealed himself or you worship your ability to make sense of the world around you. Now, for those who believe in the God who's revealed himself, the world around you actually is a wonderful place to begin to think about the resurrection. And Paul turns from considering these questions to thinking about creation as evidence of God's power and the variety, really, of God's power. God is not limited. He doesn't just do one thing. His power is not a one-note song, but there's a massive variety in creation all around us, and Paul points to these things. 
He turns from agriculture to animal life and from animal life to heavenly bodies. And step by step, almost, Paul's unraveling each level of creation that the Lord has made. He's using this to show us God's power. There's a major division there in verse 40. Paul speaks of heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. And he uses this in a particular order, even though he's moving from speaking of earthly bodies to heavenly bodies. But he reverses the order in verse 40. This is meant to recall that language. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's pointing to God's creation power as proof that God can do basically anything he wants to do, and he has done it, and he will do it. He goes on to speak of things uh, that the Lord has created. God created things above and below. God made light and he separated it from the darkness. He separated waters from waters. He set out the dry land and he made boundaries. God has filled creation with bodies as he desired and each in their own place, in their proper domain. God has filled the heavens with the stars. He's filled the skies with the birds and the seas with the fish. He's filled the land with beasts and humans. And everything that God has made is perfectly suited for just where he's placed it. He speaks of flesh and glory, and he speaks of separation between some of these different things. And we don't have to go too far into detail to realize the main point that Paul's getting at, that God's power is incredibly varied. There's no shortage of ideas or diversity in what God can do. As a child, I really loved watching nature documentaries with my dad. Nobody else in the family liked them. Uh, but he and I would sit and watch nature shows as long as they were on. And in my own household, we're carrying on that tradition. So we have found on Amazon, you can find reruns of Marty Stauffer's Wild America, one of the great classics. Uh, but we also watch uh, BBC's Planet Earth. And just the variety in the animal life that God has created is enough to take your breath away. Just when you think of the difference between something like a wildebeest and a crocodile and a pelican. It's startling what the Lord has made. But then you see some of these videos that they bring back. They've got these submarines that go down into the depths of the ocean. They come back with videos of these tiny little jellyfish with lights all around and fish with teeth that are so big, you swear they can't get their mouth around anything. And it's startling, and it's, it's wonderful, and it's fantastic. Now take all that and add to it hundreds of billions of galaxies full of hundreds of billions of stars, and you get an idea what Paul is saying here. God has made many wonderful and varied things. And all the diversity of creation ought to make us confident that the God who's made all these things is able to make us a body, whatever it looks like, whatever it might be like, a body that is perfectly fit for life in the resurrection. The God who's created the biggest stars and the smallest cells will not leave out anything that we need when he gives us new life and bodies in Christ. Now, this isn't particularly in the passage, but there's another question that believers sometimes have about the resurrection, and I think creation here helps us uh, to understand this question and to ask and answer it. Sometimes I hear, and you might hear from Christians, what will the Lord do with people whose bodies have been completely destroyed, just totally gone? Uh, on July 6th, 1415, the Roman Catholic Church burned a man they said was a heretic by the name of John Huss. Huss was executed, uh, among other things, because he advocated that people ought to be able to read scriptures in their own language. 
was a friend of Wycliffe, and he wanted uh, the people in Prague, where he was, to be able to read in the Bohemian language, and he wanted the scriptures to be translated, and the Catholic Church put him to death for that. Well, at the time of his death, he already had quite a few followers. And the Romans were worried that his followers would gather together his remains, and they'd try to pass them off as relics. And so after the flames died down, the executioners gathered up John Huss's remains. They ground his bones into powder, and they threw all the ashes into the river so that nobody could find him. And at the resurrection, what will happen with John Huss? At the resurrection, what will happen with believers who were torn by beasts in the Colosseum? What will happen to people who have, who have died in bombs or, or other catastrophes? How will God raise bodies that no longer exist? Creation is helpful here. If we believe, as Scripture has said, that God has made all things out of nothing in the span of six days and all very good, then that's not very far to go to realize that God can and will raise up and reconstitute the bodies of his people no matter how far they have been spread. Hebrews says it this way, By faith we understand the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. At the resurrection, John Huss will get a body just like you'll get a body. And his body will be his body, and your body will be your body. And all the powers of death and decay and sword and famine and pestilence will be powerless before the power of God. And Paul's pointing here to creation to show us that we ought to have ultimate confidence that the Lord is able to do whatever he has promised for his people. Now finally, beginning in verses 42 and following, Paul turns from creation and the evidence that we have about God's power from creation to considering Jesus Christ and the pattern that he is for God's power in the resurrection. All of it's working toward this summary that we find at the end in verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now the idea of image here and bearing the image The idea is that all of us now in our mortal bodies with some form and variation are conformed to one prototype, Adam, the first man. There are differences. There are male and female. There are different ethnicities. There are different abilities. There are all kinds of differences between people, but we all fit the same basic image, the same model. And together with that same image, we also bear the same infirmities, the same mortality, the same limitations that Adam had. But there's another pattern. There's the man of heaven, the son of God who came from heaven and has been raised already. And when the Lord raises up his people, we will be conformed to a new prototype. There will be variations, there will be slight differences, and that's okay. But we will have a new image. We will be made like Jesus in his resurrected body. Now that means a few significant things for God's resurrected people. For one, it means that our bodies will undergo a significant physical change. We'll still have physical bodies, but they'll undergo quite a change. Uh, They'll be the bodies that we have now, but they'll be different. In verses uh, 42 and 43, Paul lays out a few comparisons. He goes back to his agricultural imagery, that of, of sowing and reaping, and he imagines almost the body being planted in the ground at burial, just the same way that the farmer plants the crops in hopes of a harvest being gathered. And he says the body is sown, but it will be raised. When it's sown, it's sown perishable. And it is sown in dishonor, and it's sown in weakness. Our bodies, at some point, will be sown like wilted produce, 
that's beyond its shelf life and only needs to be discarded. It's a bleak picture, but it's the reality. Though we try to ignore it, though we try to amuse ourselves and forget from time to time our mortality and the limitations of our human bodies, we each have those moments where we're brought to clarity. Maybe that moment is, as so many in our congregation, even this week, have sat beside the bed of a loved one. Maybe that moment comes when you hear that frightening diagnosis from your doctor and he uses those words that you never wanted to hear him use. Maybe it comes on a near miss on 495 and your heart is left pounding because you know that you are literally inches away from your own death. And we have those moments of clarity that we're brought to remember Isaiah's words. All flesh is grass, all its beauty like the flower of the field. And the grass withers and the flower fades. That is the end of all men and all women, all children who grew up to be men and women, and all children who die in young age. It is withering and fading. And all this withering and all this fading is a byproduct of our natural body. It's part of the image that we bear of the man of dust. Like the first man we have sinned, and like the first man we must die. But all that will be changed at the resurrection. We will be raised with real bodies, and our bodies will be perfected. Now, to my knowledge, Benjamin Franklin never claimed to be a Bible-believing Christian. But at the age of 22, in 1728, he did pen a nice epitaph that he imagined one day might be on his tombstone. It's not on his tombstone. His tombstone simply says, Benjamin Franklin. Um, That's it. (laughs) But here's what he imagined at the age of 22 might look good on his tombstone. He wrote, The body of Benjamin Franklin, printer. Like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding, lies here, food for worms. But the work shall not be wholly lost, for it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more elegant edition, corrected and improved by the author. That's beautiful. And Franklin got it right. Uh, that we will have the same body, it will be the same work, the same person, but our bodies will be perfected. They'll be different. We will bear the image of the man of heaven. That's the one thing, that our bodies will undergo this physical change that we need to know. The second thing, though, is that the image, bearing the image of Jesus in the resurrection, means that our bodies will be made spiritual rather than natural. See that in verse 44. It's the last of these comparisons that he makes. The body is sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. And if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Don't get the wrong idea here. When Paul says that we will have spiritual bodies, he doesn't mean that we're going to be like ghosts. It doesn't mean that we're going to be immaterial, something that you can't feel and handle and touch. Jesus, again, is, is our pattern here. Jesus was raised with a real body, and he appeared to his disciples, and he ate, and he drank with them, and they touched his hands and touched his side, and they recognized him sometimes. And so a spiritual body, like Jesus' resurrected body, doesn't mean that we'll be immaterial, but it does mean that we will be fit and prepared for a spiritual existence. While our bodies live and move and have their being in this natural realm, this world, we are dependent upon natural means. We are sustained by food and water. We need shelter and clothing and all these things that keep our bodies going. 
We have natural limitations, but when we're raised, our bodies will be different. They'll be suitable for the spiritual realm where God dwells. We will not subsist and we will not live on natural things. And what is natural will give way to what is spiritual. Now these things are hard to wrap our minds around. Uh, So let's think about it in another way. The difference between the spiritual life that we will have in Jesus and the natural life that we do have now in Adam is like the difference between reading Shakespeare and reading Spark Notes. It's like the difference between drinking orange juice and drinking Tang. One is the real thing, and the other is really just a watered-down approximation of the real thing. And that's what Paul is telling us here. All the life that we have now, this natural life, is secondhand. It comes to us through an intermediary. It's, it's given to us as a life that is derived from someone else who has also received life. There's a big difference there in verse 45. It is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, but the last Adam became a life-giving soul. There's a big difference there. We have life now in Adam that's secondhand, but in the resurrection we'll have firsthand life. We will drink from the fountain and the source as it is. We'll be sustained by God's power, His Spirit working in His people. And folks, this is the secret of the resurrection. This is why the, the scriptures speak of the resurrection life is so much purer and so much more glorious and so much greater than anything we can experience here. Because those who will bear the image of the man of heaven will receive life from the life-giving source himself. We will receive life from the one who has tasted death and cannot die. We will receive life from the one who lives as our high priest forever, says Hebrews, by the power of an indestructible life. He is already the pattern of our resurrection, but when he comes again and we are raised, he will also be the source of our resurrection. And our bodies will be changed, no longer merely natural, but also spiritual. And we will bear the image of the man of heaven. Before we leave uh, this passage, we need to mention here that, that all of these things that we're reading about are true in some way, for all people. But they're only completely true, the promises and the glory that we're reading about, they're only really true for God's redeemed people. Thus far in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, we haven't dealt with the doctrine of the general resurrection. We haven't dealt with it because Paul hasn't dealt with it. His focus has been on what happens to believers at the resurrection. But you need to know that the Bible teaches that all men and women will be raised bodily. There will be a change at the last day for all people who have lived and whoever will live. In Daniel, it says it this way. Those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. All people will be raised on the last day. But only God's redeemed children will belong to Christ and will be made like him. Only his people will be made glorious. Only his people will be given strength. Only his people will be raised imperishable. Those who die in this life apart from Christ will be raised again to experience what the Bible calls the second death. It is far from imperishability. It is, in a sense, a constant perishing. It is the everlasting shame and contempt and dishonor of damnation. 
If you are at all on the fence, wondering where this comes home for you, or if you are at all skeptical about these things, hear and understand and believe that it is appointed unto all men once to die and then to come into judgment, and all will be raised. And if this is not true to you now, it will be true in a way that you will not be able to avoid or amuse yourself out of thinking about it. It is only by knowing Jesus and by believing in him that any of us can have hope for resurrection life. But notice the way that Paul ends. That those who are in Christ, no longer spoken of, the resurrection is not spoken of in terms of potential, but in terms of reality. Notice what he says. We have borne the image of the man of dust. We shall bear the image of the man of heaven. This is a certainty for those who are in Christ, that they will be raised imperishable and glorious and given power from the Spirit. There is truth and hope and glory here. I don't know if that answers all of your questions about the resurrection. I'm sure it doesn't. By God's... uh, Grace, uh, Lord willing, we will come back and we'll see the rest of this chapter next week. So it probably doesn't answer all of your questions. But it does give us a promise that while we wait to see the pattern of resurrection revealed in Jesus, we can have hope in him and a sure hope that he is coming back and whatever bodies we will have, we will see him. This is the way that John puts it. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. This is our hope, and he is our source, and he is our pattern. Jesus Christ, the resurrected Savior, reveals to us the pattern of God's power for resurrection. And so come to him with all of your questions. Come to him with any of your skepticism. Come to him with all of your worship. Look upon him. Believe in the truth of the gospel. And let's rejoice together at his table. Please join me in prayer. O Lord, our God, we thank you for this truth that you have given us. We pray that you would confirm to us and in our hearts and our understanding all these things that we have seen today. These are difficult truths to wrap our minds around and things that we have not experienced. And so we pray that you would give us grace in our questioning by seeking to understand what your word is teaching us we would draw near to you, that we would seek you and find you, and we seek you with all of our heart. O Lord, bind up those who have come in today brokenhearted. Bind us up with the truth of the resurrection. Keep us all looking for that day when you will return and call your people to yourself, when the perishable will put on imperishability, and flesh and blood will put on glory and live with you. O Lord, give us hearts to rejoice in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.